This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA here on this Wednesday. Taking a look at the world of agriculture this morning, we're seeing that grain rally continue over on the Chicago Board of Trade. Garrett Toy of Ag Trader Talk will join us at the end of the show to break down what he thinks is going to develop as the day goes on. Before we get to Garrett, though, we're going to talk about the soybean market globally. Doug Winter, chairman of the board at the U.S. Soybean Export Council, will join us in just a minute to discuss the Soy Connect meeting happening out in San Diego, California. And in segment two, we're going to check in with Daryl Peel, professor of agribusiness at Oklahoma State. We're going to talk about those placement numbers from the cattle on feed report last Friday, plus how do ranch financials look in the Southern Plains right now after a year of drought? Dr. Peel will bring us the update. And in segment three, John Holzman, our geopolitical analyst and friend in Milan, Italy, will be joining us for an update on what's happening between Russia and Ukraine and how those spillover effects could impact Europe and therefore their agricultural industry as we get into this fall. First, though, let's jump over to Doug Winter. He joins us from San Diego. Doug, thank you so much for joining us today. How are things going at the Soy Connects Forum? Well, thanks for having me, Mike. Good morning. Um, things are going great. We have amazing attendance this year. We've got over 600 industry representatives. We have over 400 international customers or soy buyers from around, uh, I think we have over 60 countries represented here. And so things are being going great. The presentations have been going great. Uh, the, the social interface, the conversations have been going outstanding. We, we've had a lot of really good conversations with our customers around the world. And, and and getting those matched up with a number of our export sellers and our our technology providers and just just general people in the soy business uh, from from the entire array. And that is so crucial. As we think about soybeans, they continue to be, I believe, hold the record, they are America's largest food and agricultural export. So that international community is essential. Doug, what are the topics on the mind of those international buyers as they come to the U.S. in this environment right now? Well, I think <laughs> with international buyers, Mike, I think the, the first front of mind topic is where is the U.S. crop at? What's the quality? What's the size? It's been very useful for us to partner this year with, uh, we're actually a sponsor, USAC a sponsor of the Pro Farmer Crop Tour. So we've been getting uh, daily updates from what they're finding on the Pro Farmer Crop Tour. Everyone really has an interest. One of the, the great things about this is we have farmers from all across the USA also attend USEC, and it gives our customers a chance to talk to farmers in different regions of the country and find out what the crop looks like in their particular area and kind of get a picture of, of kind of get the big picture of what the, the soybean crop's looking like all across the USA. So that's going to be our, our first and foremost topic or our hottest conversation topic. And then, of, of course, sustainability always comes into the conversation with the U.S., what we believe is the most sustainably grown soybean crop. That's been one of the, we get to communicate as farmers what we do on our individual farms to to um, constantly improve our sustainability program. So it's, it's just been great conversations all the way around. Well, that is good to hear, Doug. I'm curious, here in this country over the past year, we have had a lot of conversations about veg oils broadly, soybean oils in particular, as we move towards more advanced biofuels. Is that a topic of, uh, of curiosity amongst the international buyers who visit this country as well? Are they rethinking the soybean oil market? Well, I think they're, they're taking a closer look and trying to figure out where all the new crush capacity that, that is planned to come online over the next two to three to four years and what the biofuels usage of the oil is going to be, where that's going to, to calculate into the edible oil market. Uh, one of the things that we've told them that we keep looking at trend line yields increasing in the U.S. on soybean production, and we've tried to, to, to communicate that U.S. farmers are really ready and we are quite capable with the technology that we have at our, our disposal now on the farms to be able to increase the amount that we're producing so we can still provide the the oil and the meal and and also the whole beans that these input buyers are, are going to need around the world. 
and it's it's we've had some really good representation. There were some presentations on the on what what the production and usage looks like, and kind of where those curves are are taking out in where they're they're going to be looking out into the future. All right. That is a huge topic. We're going to see how that develops as time goes on. And I'm curious, Doug, as you look farther out at at some of the more advantages that the United States have, it's always been our transport and delivery. As these international buyers are visiting, are we still top of the heap when it comes to getting orders purchased and delivered when we say we will? Yes. And that the, the reliability of the U.S. crop, both from a production standpoint and from being able to deliver, um, we we have a, a very good transportation system in the U.S. and it's still the foremost one in the world. It's something I think our infrastructure we have to pay close attention to to keep constant improvements in. I think that's something that's very important. I, I and I think we have a number of programs that are beginning to that are coming in line to improve our waterway transportation system. Um, we've had conversations with the rail companies and they're planning on making improvements because a lot of that. Um, the soybeans that are are transported out of the country are shipped through the uh, Pacific Northwest area, and that's predominantly a rail market. Improvements to the locks and dams in my particular part of the country, where my farm's at in southeastern Illinois, uh, we deliver on the Ohio River, but that goes to the Mississippi and down to the New Orleans ports, and the lock and dams improvements all the way up the Mississippi and the Illinois and Ohio rivers, I think are are all going to be an integral part we have to pay attention to all of but all of our customers we we have such a good reliability and timely shipping um system in the u.s that i think our, our logistics are are still foremost in the world and i realized that uh, that usac re- released the soybean export council value calculator as a way to help these buyers uh, negotiate between de- purchasing from the u.s or other places how does that calculator work well you can take a number of, of of aspects or 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 things of uh, factors that are in the composition of the bean um the, and you can put it into what your cost is um we think it it helps crushers and it helps feed millers that can really compare the economic values of soybeans from various places in the world it it lets the protein and it looks at the protein and the oil factors, but more than that, it looks like it looks at a lot of the inherent values, like the amino acids, which U.S. soybeans have a higher fat or higher composition of, and it takes into com- uh, into to its calculation the physical factors and a lot of the other data to analyze what the total economic value benefit of, of U.S. beans compared to soy from other origins around the world is. So I think it. It's a it's a really good it's an apples to apples is what I tell people it, it really helps you compare on an apples to apples or or a like product it it takes in all those factors and it really helps to give you a good picture of what the true value and, and what the benefit of buying U.S. soy is. That is fantastic, Doug. We better let you get back in there to the conference, move some more U.S. beans offshore. Thank you for joining us here on AOA today. All right, thanks, Mike. We'll do our best here. All right, folks, stick around. Dr. Daryl Peel of Oklahoma State University will be joining us to discuss the cattle market when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, where we take a close look at the benefits of cooperative ownership. Each week, we'll host a new guest and discuss how you can get the most from working with your local cooperative. And we'll learn why farmers and ranchers just like you choose cooperatives to help them persevere and prosper. Tune in each Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Are you headed to the Farm Progress Show in Boone, Iowa this year? If so, stop by the Trelleborg Wheel Systems booth to see all the latest in tires. Also, Mike Pearson of Agriculture of America will be broadcasting live all three days there from the Trelleborg Wheel Systems booth. That's booth 928. Stop by to watch the show at 9 a.m. And that's in Trelleborg booth 928. We'll see you in Boone at the Farm Progress Show.
Choose the proven performance of the Roundup Ready Extend crop system, featuring high-yielding Extend Flex soybeans and the exceptional weed control of Extend-to-Max herbicide with vapor grip technology. Elite genetics, triple herbicide tolerance, flexibility that delivers results, backed by 25 years of innovation. That's the Roundup Ready Extend crop system, the system of choice. Extend-to-Max is a restricted-use pesticide. Always follow stewardship practices, all pesticide label directions, and check with your state pesticide regulatory agency for specific restrictions in your state. They say if you listen hard enough, you can hear the corn grow. It's true. When you're out in the field, you understand its challenges and what it needs to thrive. Channel Seedsmen bring insights from the field to our team of Bayer plant breeders. Their knowledge inspires our product development. From your best ground to your most challenging conditions, our products are designed to perform in your fields. Visit ChannelListens.com to see our latest innovations. Always read and follow IRM where applicable. Grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. As an organ donor, your story doesn't have to end. The good in you can live on. In fact, you could save up to eight lives with your gifts. Your heart could keep beating. Your kidneys could keep filtering. And your intestines could keep on digesting for others. And that's not all. You can improve the lives of 50 more people as an eye and tissue donor, restoring sight and health. And you're not just helping out the person receiving the transplant. You're touching whole families with your life-saving gift. Register in minutes. Just go to organdonor.gov. You'll be happy you did. And just maybe, someone else will be happy too. Sign up today. Go to organdonor.gov. It saves lives. U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. You know, we talk about the cattle market a lot on this program. We do that because certainly a lot of folks across rural America are engaged in cattle and beef production, but also that industry functions as a bellwether. It functions as a bellwether for consumers' cash on hand. Are they willing to spend the prices for that premium product at the meat case? And it's also a bellwether for the climate and weather more broadly. These droughts that have been impacting parts of the country have been upending the uh, the cattle flow through Throughout this country. And joining me to talk about it is Dr. Daryl Peel, professor of agribusiness at Oklahoma State University. Dr. Peel, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, yeah. Good morning, Mike. How are you? I am well, sir. I am well. I want to talk to you first about this placements number that we got last Friday on the cattle on feed report. It came in much higher than analysts were expectations, up 2% month on month. Dr. Peel, where did these calves come from? <laughs> Well, you know, that's a bit of a question. I mean, it, you, we always seem to be a little surprised at where we can continue to find cattle when something unusual happens, and that's what's going on here. This is a continuation of a pattern we've seen for the last three months in particular, but generally for the entire year where we've, um, you know, feedlots have been placing lighter weight cattle uh, because that's what they can find increasingly. So, um, and with the drought helping that out, uh, these cattle are being forced to, to move to town sooner. I think what we're seeing here in this latest set of placements, you know, we probably got a combination of some fall calves that were weaned right off the cow uh, that might have uh, normally gone into a backgrounding program but are, are in the market already. We probably have some springborn calves that are early weaned, would not have been weaned until October or so that are already being marketed. And then we probably got some summer grazing cattle that would have come off in September and October uh, as yearling cattle. And they're already in town, again, all because we simply don't have any uh, forage out in the country for them. Well, with that being the case with the lack of forage, the poor pasture conditions across the Southern Plains, I imagine that heifer percentage of cattle being placed continues to climb. Are you hearing that across the countryside? Well, I think so. You know, we, we get data only quarterly on the breakdown of what's in the feedlots in terms of steers and heifers. The July 1 quarterly number showed that heifer, uh, heifers in feedlots continues to stay above 
steers were down. You know, we know in general that feeder supplies are getting tighter. The estimated feeder supply on July 1 was down, and it was also down in January. So, uh, you know, we've been seeing smaller calf crops now for about four years. And uh, uh, But it's, you know, again, we're putting more of these heifers. Uh, we're diverting them from breeding purposes into the feedlots and maintaining those numbers. So heifer slaughter so far this year is up 4.2%, while steer slaughter has been down 2.2% uh, so far this year. Uh, so again, we've kind of got this uh, mismatch, if you will, between what's going on with overall cattle numbers and what's going on with the female numbers. Yeah, and I'm wondering, those female numbers, as you mentioned, that heifer kill has been accelerated all year. We've heard a lot about accelerated cow kills happening this year as, as that culling continues to happen across the Southern Plains. Daryl, are, are we almost done with the culling? I mean, are, are folks getting their feet under them with regard to the drought situation down there across Oklahoma and the Texas Panhandle? Well, you know, again, we continue to see uh, relatively large volumes. You look at weekly auction volumes, we continue to see large, larger than usual volumes, or at least larger than last year volumes of both cull cows and feeder cattle. Cull cows in particular, for the last five or six weeks in Oklahoma, we've seen more than a 100% increase year over year in the volume of, of uh, cull animals uh, in the market. So, you know, again, we, we'd have to think that we're getting some of the culling done. Uh, some of this culling has been going on for a year, depending on where the drought was and where people are located. Uh, but yet, uh, because of the severity of the situation, we continue to see culling. I suspect we'll see a little less seasonal increase in culling this fall, simply because we have already moved some of those cows, but it doesn't look like we're completely done yet. You know, I, as I've watched markets intermittently over the summer, it has looked like those cull cow prices have been very, very elevated, certainly relative to, to you know, fat cattle pricing. Daryl, is that still the case or are we starting to see those culls, uh, the, the economic value come down a little bit? You know, they've remained remarkably strong for the most part. There was about two weeks in July when a lot of cattle moved out of the country in Texas and Oklahoma, and we did see a pretty sharp drop in cull cow prices, but it only lasted a couple of weeks. And even though the volumes continue strong, new buyers have come in. Uh, we're hearing stories of some more northern buyers coming in. And so those prices jump back up, even with uh, continued uh, big volumes of cull animals. So all in all, the prices have been pretty good, a little more volatile than usual, but uh, cull cow prices have remained remarkably strong. You know, you, you hate to see strong cull cow prices as the the antidote to a drought, but at least if those producers need to move some coals, the, the prices are at least there for them. Daryl, I want to circle back to the cattle on feed report. We, the other number that jumped out at me was the marketing's being down substantially from last year. Placement's 2% higher than a year ago. Marketing's 4% under. Are, are we starting to see a divergence here in the cattle market? I mean, could we have tougher margins in the immediate six-week future? Well, there's a couple of things going on with the the marketing. First of all, there was one less business day last month. So on a, on a daily average basis, marketings were actually a little bit higher last year. So you always have to make that kind of one-day adjustment. That's part of it. But the other thing is that even though cattle on feed inventories are high, we've continued placing, but we're placing these lightweight cattle. So we're maintaining feedlot inventories with lightweight cattle, but overall, the number of cattle coming out of feedlots is going to be coming down over time. We don't have more cattle. We're just making them stay in the feedlots longer by placing them at lighter weights. So you kind of expect it over time. The short answer to all of that is that, you know, we're, we're certainly not getting backed up, if you will, or, or there's a lack of currentness. I think uh, feedlots are, are continuing to be current uh, as we go forward here. So, and in fact, uh, given the placement pattern we've had for the last two or three months, I think we'll see relatively um, sort of, uh, you know, uh, relatively speaking, tighter supplies of feedlot-ready cattle here for a couple months. Most of these recent placements that were so lightweight are not going to come out until November, December, and on into the first quarter of next year. Well, and that kind of leads to my next question, Dr. Peel. We've got very lightweight calves going on feed right now, and we've got corn December contract at 660 and three quarters right now. Uh, those lightweight calves are going to be eating a lot of grain by the time they get to harvest in November, December. What are you seeing? How are these producers managing that risk, given the uncertainty we've got with uh, this year's corn production? You know, I think feedlots obviously face an increasingly challenging environment here going forward. Cattle numbers will continue to tighten, so at some point they're going to have trouble even maintaining those inventories. Uh, and they are paying a lot more. We're seeing stronger calf prices and feeder cattle prices. 
in the face of higher uh, cost of gain, as you mentioned. And so that all of that suggests that there's a, there's a, a squeeze g happening a bit in this. Now, obviously, uh, you know, the futures market does reflect uh, expectations for generally higher prices. So, and we've seen stronger Fed cattle markets too. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of dynamics in these markets right now. I think feedlots are going to face some challenges with all of this uh, as we go forward. Um, but the bottom line is they're placing calves because that's what they have. That's what they can find, um, not because that's what they'd really prefer to feed. As you said, those lightweight calves eat a lot of grain, but there's just simply not any yearling cattle out there, or relatively speaking, and, and I think that's going to continue to tighten as we go into the fall. Yeah, cattle feeders like to buy an empty pen is a position, as they say. Daryl, I'm curious, you mentioned consumer demand, box beef values staying solid up here. Do you think that U.S. consumer is going to be able to continue to buy beef as we head into this fall? Well, you know, we've been watching demand very carefully all this year and, you know, coming out of last year. Uh, I think beef demand is sort of capped, if you will, because of consumer limitations, obviously with inflationary pressures. We've had high gas prices. We're getting a little bit of relief on that now. Uh, but the bottom line is the supply fundamentals in the beef industry suggest that there's no real opportunity for beef prices to come down. In fact, they're probably going to be uh, tending to push higher. And the question is going to be how much higher can they go at the consumer level. Uh, and so I Again, there's a bit of a squeeze play. I think we're going to see a lot of action in the margins at both the feedlot and the packing level, uh, wholesale level, in terms of uh, you know that sort of squeeze between tighter supply fundamentals and, and perhaps a, a little bit limited. Bottom line is I think we will probably push these prices a little bit higher over time, but it may be a slow process because there are limitations for consumers right now. There are. And, you know, you mentioned that slow rise in prices. We've seen that here in live cattle over the past year. You expect it to continue. Obviously, we don't know where it's going to end, but how should producers be managing that if they've got calves coming out of the feedlot February, April, March next year? Well, you know, again, the futures market's got, uh, you know, substantial uh, trend, if you will, built into that at this point. Um, obviously, you've got to look at that relative to the cost of gain, the cost of production that's going to be on those animals. Um, and I do think, in general, the trend will continue to be very solid for these animals. That's not to say we won't have some volatility along the way, um, but the supply fundamentals are going to continue to get tighter. Nevertheless, the risk is there. There's always a risk, of course, of black swan events. We've been through lots of those. So producers uh, certainly need to consider whether they need to have some risk protection, at least on the bottom side, uh, to sort of uh, prevent against some sort of uh, catastrophic thing in the market, even if we think the trend is, is still pretty friendly. That is great point, folks. These uh, We've had the wind taken out of our sails a time or two in the cattle industry over the past couple of years. Cover those tails while you can. Dr. Daryl Peel, Oklahoma State University, professor of agribusiness, thanks for joining us today. You're very welcome. And folks, stick around. We're going to talk with geopolitical strategist John Hulsman about the situation between Russia and Ukraine when AOA returns after this. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Choose the proven performance of the Roundup Ready Extend crop system, featuring high-yielding Extend Flex soybeans and the exceptional weed control of Extend-to-Max herbicide with vapor grip technology. Elite genetics, triple herbicide tolerance, flexibility that delivers results, backed by 25 years of innovation. That's the Roundup Ready Extend crop system, the system of choice. Extend-to-Max is a restricted-use pesticide. Always follow stewardship practices, all pesticide label directions, and check with your state pesticide regulatory agency for specific restrictions in your state. They say if you listen hard enough, you can hear the corn grow. It's true. When you're out in the field, you understand its challenges and what it needs to thrive. Channel Seedsmen bring insights from the field to our team of Bayer plant breeders. Their knowledge inspires our product development. From your best ground to your most challenging conditions, our products are designed to perform in your fields. Visit ChannelListens.com to see our latest innovations. Always read and follow IRM where applicable. Grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. 
Well, as we take a look at what's going on in the ag trade, grains have come off their highs a bit, although we are still in the green across the screen for the most part, while the livestock trade is a bit mixed here so far on Wednesday morning. Now, on the grain side, the trade is watching the Midwest crop tour this week. Nebraska corn yields were pegged to just 158.5 bushels per acre, well below last year and average, and the lowest since 2013, with soybean pod counts below comparables as well, the lowest since 2012, as uh, we continue to see some of the production challenges in the western corn belt indiana corn yields were well below last year as well but roughly in line with the three-year average at 177.85 bushels per acre that the tour has found the three-year average for them soybean pod counts also aligned with average but estimates were still their lowest for the state since 2019 gonna be watching the tour here today as it moves into iowa eastern leg going through illinois into eastern iowa with the western leg working through western iowa today going to be watching very closely the yield potential in these key i states here as we work through day number three of that midwest tour a few numbers in the trade corn december new crop eight and a half higher 663 and three quarters november beans up 14 and a half 1475 and a half september bean meal at 420 a ton to 472.70 bean oil september up 14.6973 september chicago wheat eight and a half higher 791 and a quarter kc wheat september up 16 to three quarters 899 and a quarter spring wheat september up 10 and a quarter 910 and a quarter hogs follow through selling there after yesterday's big drop in cutouts led to loss October hogs down 122.9167. Feeder cattle for August 20 higher 181.10. And August live cattle down 15 at 141.47. Crude oil up 59 cents a barrel 94.33. This is AOA. I'm Jesse Allen. Hey, Dad. Your prescription will be ready in just a minute. Hey, Dad. Your laundry will be ready in just a minute. Dad, your lunch will be ready in just a minute. Hey, honey. Why don't you take a minute? When you help care for a loved one, you give them as much time as you can, making sure they're safe and comfortable. But it's just as important that you take some time for yourself. At AARP, we can help with information and useful tips on how you can maintain a healthy life balance, care for your own physical and mental well-being, and manage the challenges of caring for a loved one. Because the better care you take of yourself, the better care you can provide for your loved one. Thanks, Dad. Thank you. You're there for them. We're here for you. Find free care guides to support you and your loved one at aarp.org slash caregiving. That's aarp.org slash caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to Agriculture of America, ladies of America. <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, apologies. I am uh, looking forward to this next segment, folks. Here at the end of August, we mark six months post Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. Today, specifically, is the Ukrainian Independence Day. That, that war continues to upend global trade flows. We did see an announcement this morning that yet another fertilizer plant in Poland has shut down production. I figured it was time we check back in on the situation on the ground there in Eastern Europe. And to do that, John Holzman joins us today. He is the president of John Holzman Enterprises. They're an international relations consulting firm, and he's also an author and a newsletter writer on Substack, host of the Around the World in 20 Minutes podcast. John, thanks for joining us today. Always fun to check in, Mike. Bring us up to speed on the situation between Russia and Ukraine. Russia expected this to be a quick war. Here we are six months later. It's ongoing. John, what are you seeing on the ground? Well, as we said before, once the Russians didn't win in their blitzkrieg, and we've gone through kind of why, they've gone to they've gone back to their old tried and true methods since World War II of winning ugly, straightforward, no tactical creativity at all, and just overwhelming people by mass. As Stalin once said, at a certain point, quantity becomes quality if you have enough of it. And the Russians have indeed begun to move very slowly in World War One-like fashion through a uh, the Donbass, the two eastern provinces of Ukraine that are Russian-speaking. The first of those provinces, Luhansk, they've entirely taken. But as time has gone on, they've really ground to a halt in, in Donetsk. 
the next province, and really things are at an utter standstill, with Russia controlling around 20% of Ukraine, but going no farther. But Ukraine, on the other hand, not having the ability to roll back Russian gains, and we're caught in the stalemate. And a stalemate, of course, in that Ukrainian-Russian winter doesn't always end well. John, what happens as the temperatures start to get cold? Well, I mean, two things are going on. I mean, the gamble that Putin is now making is that the Western countries will stay unified in the winter when the energy costs really hit Western Europe because of their disastrous energy policies, which we've talked about before for the last two decades. They are utterly beholden to Russian gas and oil. And although they're trying to diversify, you can't flick a switch and do that. And so there's been a disruption. There are going to be vast increases in energy prices and Europe is going to go in recession. The question is when those conditions hit, Will Western Europeans still want to support Ukraine or will they want some sort of accommodation with the Russians to alleviate their economic burden? And that's really what we're down to right now. Well, and John, you are plugged into the people who will be making those decisions. Which way do you think the wind is blowing? Will Europe hold it together or will expensive natural gas cause them to throw in the towel on the sanctions? I don't know if they'll throw in the towel, but I would look for them being the weak link. And and I don't think they're going to hold it together. I think people who say so, as you say, don't know people here. Let's remember the last time that the Western Europeans have really had to make significant economic sacrifices was in World War II. That's a long, long time ago. And it's great to favor Ukraine theoretically, but when your gas bill jumps by a factor of 300%, as will be the case in the UK, hundreds of percentage points in Europe. When Germany will go into recession, Germany is the most exposed, ironically, to Russian natural gas, and it's the motor of Europe. I really don't see them doing much. And already, remember, Western Europe together is giving less armaments and aid to Ukraine than the United States is. All the Western European states together are already giving less than America. I look for that to taper off further. If the Western Europeans could cut a deal, which they can't, they'd do it now. Interesting. And, you know, you mentioned the Western European resolve might be weakening. And it's worth noting that, of course, this war in the Eastern Europe isn't the only thing they're dealing with. Europe currently in the grips of a major drought. John, you're in Milan, Italy, Po River Valley. How do things look there in, in your part of Europe? Well, catastrophic. I mean, the Po River Valley in the north is where a lot of the agrarian agricultural products come from, the wonderful cherries I like eating here in the summer in Milan. And right now prices are skyrocketing because there simply hasn't been anything like enough water to keep things going. And when you add into the fact in Italy, there's an election coming up in September uh, that will probably see a combination of the center right and the far right come to power. We're going to move from the technocratic government of Mario Draghi, which really failed after only 17 months. One of the reasons for this failure has been the drought and has been the upheaval. Remember, Italy is less economically well off or as economically well off now as it was 20 years ago. That's a staggering factoid that Italy has not had any real GDP gain since it joined the euro. And this pressure combined with the drought, combined with the war, have really added political risk to Western Europe. And that political risk isn't confined to Western Europe either. You mentioned that Italian election in September. Come November, though, John, we're going to have an election in this country that is going to reshape foreign policy. And with that being your wheelhouse, I'm curious as to how you think see things shaking out post those November midterm elections with regard to America's approach to uh, to foreign friends and adversaries alike. Well, I, I think the safe thing to say, and I'm, as you know, I'm proud to say that my risk firm got it entirely right last time. And in 2020, we called a clean but clear Biden win. We called the House narrowly for the Dems and a 50-50 Senate, probably our best call yet. I <laughs> know um, I was sweating blood when the Georgia results came in. Um, well, that's why we've got you on today, John. Your, your results stand by themselves. So what do you think comes in November? I think in, I think the House will be solidly Republican by 20 to 30 seats. I think that ship has sailed. This is normal historically that the party out of power after a first term presidency, two years in, there's buyer's remorse. And only three times since the Civil War has that party gained seats in the House. And so the norm is returning here and the Republicans are set to gain 20 to 30 seats quite significant gains in the House. The Senate will be far closer because the races tend to be more localized, because this time the Democrats just have the third of the seats that are up tend to favor the Democrats, much as in two years they'll favor the Republicans. So the Senate is still too close to call, but the House is 
I think, sailed away. And so what you get out of this is that we will pivot to a lame duck administration domestically. And ironically, what that tends to do is free the president up to do more in foreign policy, because constitutionally, when you read the Constitution, it's clear that the president is first among equals in foreign policy making and just one voice of many on domestic policy making. And so ironically, I look for Biden to pivot and do an awful lot more in foreign policy because power like water follows the path of least resistance. Well, that is a very good point. As you think about what sort of moves a Biden administration could make without a Democrat majority in Congress, on the foreign policy front, there's been a lot of talk about that Indo-Pacific economic framework. John, do you think the administration's on the right track as they're pursuing this agreement? I think in general, we have been. I mean, all the presidents really of the post-Cold War era have been, partly because it until recently wasn't a priority and was left to well, we had the war on terror, and while we were worrying about the Russians, the China-American competition, which, as you know, I think is the seminal one, the future, the two superpowers out there are the United States and China, and the Indo-Pacific is where most of the world's future economic growth comes from, and most most of the world's future economic risk comes from. And so this is what we should be focusing on. This is what my firm spends 75% of their time dealing with. And so I think that, yes, it isn't so much Biden as recently tragically assassinated China, uh, Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe really set the ball rolling by organizing an anti-Chinese coalition around the quadrilateral initiative. That's India, the US, Australia, and, and Japan, and then the CPTPP free trade agreement in the Indo-Pacific. But there is a significant organization to stop Chinese adventurism. And I think the United States is right to be a part of that and will continue to do so. And we certainly want the best economic conditions going ahead with the part of the world most likely to grow. This is a no-brainer if we get it right. It is indeed. But John, you had an interesting podcast a couple of weeks ago about the future of China and how it's not necessarily the strength that China has right now that's scary. It's perhaps its decline. What's happening there with China? I, I love that you're listening to the podcast, Mike. Thank you. Um, now, the problem with China is that it's a peaking power, and it isn't that it's going from strength to strength, but like the Kaiser in 1914 who saw Russia catching up to it, or Imperial Japan in the 1930s that went from 6% growth in the 20s to 1% growth in the 30s, China is reaching the apex of its power without becoming the superpower. It's certainly number two in the world. It will remain a superpower, but it looks more and more as though it will not catch up to the United States. Its demography is miserable. It's about 1.4, where the replacement rate is 2.1. So China's going to get old before it gets rich. China's alienated the rest of the Indo-Pacific into the American camp by bullying everyone from the Uyghurs in Xinjiang province to their own students in Taiwan, uh, their own students in Hong Kong, to Taiwan, to India. This has helped the United States and also made some very stupid decisions in subsidizing state-owned enterprises, which is the least efficient part of China. So the danger is that not that China is going from strength to strength, but that its military is going to say, look, we have about five or six years to invade Taiwan, or we simply can't do it. And that's when you have wars, as we did in World War One and World War II, as I mentioned with Japan and the Kaiser. So the key is the risk is on for the next five or six years. But if we can get by that, things look very good indeed in the Indo-Pacific. So more risk, but if we can manage it, then more reward. I'm glad you brought up Taiwan. Of course, we saw Nancy Pelosi make that visit, got everything fired up. Do you think China's got any designs on Taiwan in the next six months or a year, John, or are they on their laurels for now? At the moment, they're on their laurels, and again, mainly for their own domestic reasons. You know, we, we tend to think in America, everybody cares what we're doing, but they have their own rhythm and their own politics, too. Xi Jinping has the most important meetings of his life coming up in the autumn, in October and November, the 20th Communist Party Conference, where he wants to be confirmed as, in essence, president for life. So he doesn't want to scare the horses right now. He wants no problems with anybody for the next six months or so as he beds in the fact that he's gone back to a Maoist system and really abrogated the collegial leadership of Deng Xiaoping. And so he's going to do nothing in the immediate term. But after that, the three to five years, the next three to five years are going to be fraught with peril. That's the, the risk is on. John Holzman, folks, find him on Substack. Just search for John C. Holzman. You could subscribe to the podcast and to his newsletter. Always fantastic discussion. John, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure, Mike. Look forward to talking next time. Stick around. Garrett Toy is on the show next. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA. 
agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Through the years, you've really kept up with the times. You're on social media. Like, like, dislike, block. Maintained your health. 10,000 steps. I'm a beast. You even programmed your own smart home. In 10 minutes, remind me that I'm a genius. In 10 minutes, I'll remind you that you're a genius. If you can do all that, you can definitely save for retirement. Just go to aceyourretirement.org, a free online tool sponsored by AARP that can help you get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll meet Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach, and in just three minutes, get personalized recommendations to help boost your retirement savings. They're easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's brought to you by AARP, so you know they got your back. You are a genius. Take charge of your retirement. Go to aceyourretirement.org now. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. 180 over 111, and I had a stroke. When I woke up, I couldn't speak or walk. 145 over 92, and then I had a heart attack. 182 over 100, and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest, and then a stroke. Everything changed. It felt like my life was over. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from invisible or silent. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. If I would have followed a treatment plan, I would not be in this situation. 180 over 110, and I had a stroke. And I'm 33, so I never see this coming. If you've come off your treatment plan, get back on it. Or talk with your doctor to create an exercise, diet, and medication plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org. I had to tell everything's changed. I had to tell. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. Choose the proven performance of the Roundup Ready Extend crop system, featuring high-yielding Extend Flex soybeans and the exceptional weed control of Extend to Max herbicide with Vapor Grip technology. Elite genetics, triple herbicide tolerance, flexibility that delivers results, backed by 25 years of innovation. That's the Roundup Ready Extend crop system, the system of choice. Extend to Max is a restricted-use pesticide. Always follow stewardship practices, all pesticide label directions, and check with your state pesticide regulatory agency for specific restrictions in your state. They say if you listen hard enough, you can hear the corn grow. It's true. When you're out in the field, you understand its challenges and what it needs to thrive. Channel Seedsmen bring insights from the field to our team of bear plant breeders. Their knowledge inspires our product development. From your best ground to your most challenging conditions, our products are designed to perform in your fields. Visit ChannelListens.com to see our latest innovations. Always read and follow IRM where applicable. Grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. Are you headed to the Farm Progress Show in Boone, Iowa this year? If so, stop by the Trelleborg Wheel Systems booth to see all the latest in tires. Also, Mike Pearson of Agriculture of America will be broadcasting live all three days there from the Trelleborg Wheel Systems booth. That's booth 928. Stop by to watch the show at 9 a.m. And that's in Trelleborg booth 928. We'll see you in Boone at the Farm Progress Show. Corn is native to the American continents and was unknown to the rest of humanity until Columbus arrived in the New World in the 15th century. It took less than 100 years after Columbus's discovery for corn to be introduced to farmers in Asia, Africa, Europe, and the Pacific Islands. After wheat and rice, corn is the third most cultivated crop in the world. The four nations that purchase the most corn from the United States are Mexico and Colombia, who use it as a food ingredient, and Japan and South Korea, who buy it mainly for animal feed. Around one-third of the corn grown in the United States is eaten by livestock, another third is used in the production of ethanol fuel, and the rest is either consumed by humans, exported to other nations, or used industrially. Now that's sweet corn, that's the variety that most Americans grill or boil for cookouts or just eat straight out of a can with a spoon, accounts for just 1% of all corn grown in the United States. These Farm Facts brought to you by the American Ag Network.
Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to the monthly grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association, and each month we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on the monthly grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month, and you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. Taking a look over at the commodity markets, we've seen that rally that I mentioned at the top of the episode fall apart a little bit. Seems to have been a bit of a consensus shift here in the trade. Joining us to bring to bring us up to speed is Garrett Toy of Ag Trader Talk. Garrett, what's going on here in the markets? Well, I mean, I think you kind of started the week. Uh, well, obviously, it's the Pro Farmer Tour that's taking place right now. The uh, Boots on the Ground Tour. Uh, covering uh, Western Iowa or Western Corn Belt and the Eastern Corn Belt. Uh, Western Corn Belt yields are coming in uh, worse or as expected uh, in the in the Eastern Corn Belt yields are are coming in uh, expected but patchy uh, seems to be the comment. Um, you know, a lot of the comments of the scouts, farmers on the tours that I've talked to. <clears throat> Seem to say that uh, you know the last two weeks uh, this crop has kind of really deteriorated in the Western Corn Belt. Maybe that's what's catching the trade by surprise. Um, but today's price action, I think, truly is some profit taking. I mean, uh, these corn traded at 6.71. We're we're almost 19 cents off those highs. But you know that the 100-day moving average uh, in, in that bearish trend line resistance at 6.77 became pretty close to that and saw some profit taking. So, um, you know, in similar in beans, we went up and we traded right to that old trend line resistance support from the January lows at, at 1485 and, and we've seen some profit taking and now we're consolidating around the 100 day moving average. But I think that for the most part here, I mean, I think that you've got a, it's a supply shock. I mean, I think that uh, people that didn't expect the, uh, the, uh, the Western Corn Belt to be as bad as what they're finding on tour. Now, you know, uh, put an asterisk to that is that, you know, Nebraska City, Nebraska, where they met last night, is probably some of the worst areas of Nebraska, um, and, and that's part of the tour. But just to see in the year-over-year comparisons, um, you know, you, you compare those to where the USDA is at, and it suggests that they're if those numbers are going to converge, that the USDA probably comes down a little bit. But uh, um, they're coming into Iowa here. Uh, they're finishing up Illinois and Iowa today, um, Western Iowa, I should say, and then they finish up tomorrow. But uh, it'll be interesting to see what they get in the, the, into that Western Iowa area. Obviously, it's been impacted pretty heavily by drought uh, all summer. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. That Western Iowa impact, a drought impact they've been feeling. And then, of course, Eastern Iowa up through that Northwestern Illinois area has looked very good. Garrett, you're in that geography. How do things look in your backyard? We, I, I hate to say it. We, we really are in the garden spot. I, I, I don't want to say it because we're going to risk a hailstorm or early frost or something <laughs> right. to come in. But, but uh, you know, we've been blessed with rains. Those rains that come across Northeast Iowa and Southern Minnesota um, you know, we were pushing, uh, you know, 10 inches of rain in the month of July and into August here, and, and, and we're sitting pretty. In fact, I, I, I don't want to complain, um, but, I mean, it's, it's almost it's too much moisture, and, and you're starting to see some white mold come in, and, and some of those other issues start to develop, but we really are sitting in, on, a, on a good moisture profile. Garrett, if you would, let's talk a little bit about soybeans. We've still got a bunch of uncertainty with that crop as August here moves to completion. Where do you think the trade is anticipating based on what we've learned from Pro Farmer and from that uh, conditions report drop on Monday? Well, the conditions, the conditions report were down one percent, and and uh, I think the biggest thing is it's, it's it's everything's kind of moving together. I mean, this is a a, a corn rally, if you will, and, and that kind of kicked the beans into uh, into gear as well. But it's it's more technical related. I don't think there's necessarily a bigger question. Uh, I think the, the uh, how should I say this the the 
people are more pessimistic corn yield than they are bean yield, uh, if that makes sense. Is that uh, considering the moisture that we've had in the month of August, I think that um, you know, we, it, and it's, it's odd to see this kind of divergence. If, if this market's trading a 171-172 type yield number, which I think they are at the moment, with a risk of a sub-170 yield out there, um, I think that the, the market's trading, a, a, I think they are trading a 51 to, uh, or a 50 and a half to 51 and a half type bean number, which is quite a, an unusual spread uh, considering the issues in corn and, and potentially not less there in beans. The biggest issue in, in beans at this point, at this moment, is is the Chinese economy. The crush margins aren't great, um, but it is one of those rare years where. You know, China still has three to four million metric ton of beans to buy for October, November, December, um, and that buying is going to be there when the farmer is a natural seller out of the field. And we saw some of that this morning uh, when we had a flash sale of 517,000 tons of beans to China for for 22-23. So um, China's under this market. That's definitely helping things, even though their margins aren't great. Uh, they still have purchases to make, and that's going to be a there's going to be a natural support under this market on any weakness that we see. Garrett, you mentioned those Chinese crush margins are deteriorating. How do crush margins look, do you know, here domestically in the States? Oh, they're, they're fantastic. And in fact, you're seeing that. I mean, and, and the, it's, it's really, a, you, you've got this you know, push-pull. Uh, SIF beans traded 325 uh, over the Nove yesterday for first half August, or excuse me, for August timeframe. Um, these rains in the South, uh, that are delaying harvest. Uh, you know, normally we've got you know better bean flow than what we do now, and we've got strong crush margins uh, on the interior. So you've got this this push and pull between the domestic market and in the, in the Gulf, which is trying to get beans, and in a in a slow start to southern harvest. Um, you know, it's it's meal led rally. It, it's it's the oil shares unwound here a little bit, but uh, the meal led rally has has pushed crush margins to historical historically high levels. They're just absolutely phenomenal. And that strength in, in meal has been phenomenal. How should end users, folks who are buying that meal, be dealing with it here through harvest? Do you wait and see, let the harvest come in and then step in? I think that we'll have a little bit of a setback in here. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is we had this breakout and we once again have rejected this 430 level in, in these meal. But I mean, I think right now we're basically range bound. We're going to trade a $400 to $430 type market. Um, you know, we've, we've probably seen the end of this move in here. A part of the issue is, too, is, is the way this crop has is, is ended, this marketing has ended, the, the crushers have really struggled uh, to, to maximize their utility. So that's created a little bit of wow. artificial tightness. All right, lots to watch in these markets. Garrett Toy keeps track of them all at Ag Trader Talk. Garrett, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. And folks, join us tomorrow. Senator Grassley will be on the program with an update from Washington, D.C., and we'll also talk with Matt Youngman about the Farm Progress Show. Tune in on Thursday to AOA. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. We gather together in communities across the nation to remember and honor, to celebrate and support to light the night. Join us as we lift our lanterns high in order to move toward a world free of blood cancers. Join us as we light the night for a loved one. Join us. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Our mission is to cure leukemia, lymphoma, Hodgkin's disease, and myeloma. Our aim is to improve the quality of life of patients and their families. Join us. We are LLS, and when we walk, cancer runs. Join your community and help bring light to the darkness of cancer. Join us as we light the night. Find your local event at lightthenight.org. That's lightthenight.org.